Welcome to the Learning in Wartime podcast, a show dedicated to eternal conversations for frontline living. I'm your host, Dane Bundy. In 1938, C.S. Lewis gave a sermon at Oxford University entitled Learning in Wartime. Though war for the whole world loomed ahead, Lewis argued that we must not give up on learning, for the war doesn't create a new situation, but only aggravates the permanent one, so we no longer can ignore it. Today marks the next episode of our podcast, and it also marks a time of great uncertainty, for that's what crises do. But as Christians, our hope is found in nothing less than the eternal and sovereign one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about talking, specifically how to dialogue with someone you disagree with and how to do it productively. I'm excited about this topic because, well, in our present context, more than ever, we need to be having productive discussions with one another. Today, Chelsea Carrier and Bryce Ballard will be joining me once again on the show, and we're excited to welcome our special guest, Principal Dustin Williams from Providence Academy, to share with us his thoughts on this topic. Principal Williams has taught rhetoric at Providence for many years and also serves as associate pastor at Springdale Baptist Church in Kingsport, Tennessee. He'll be sharing key principles that he teaches his rhetoric students in class, as well as important lessons that he's learned over the years. Well, I'm really excited for this conversation, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Ms. Carrier, Mr. Ballard, and Principal Williams, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Hey, it's good to be here. A pleasure to be with you today. I'm very excited for an opportunity to talk about how to dialogue, how to dialogue with people primarily we disagree with. (laughs) Yeah, actually, when I was... When I heard that this was going to be the topic for this week, uh, the Lord kind of brought a story to my mind that happened to me when I was a freshman in college. Um, I had just, obviously I was fresh out of high school and I didn't get to go to a, a school like Providence where kids have Bible classes and, you know, theology classes and apologetics. And so I came into Moody Bible Institute, a very, I don't know what, naive <laughs> Christian, very naive theologian. And um, I remember coming and having another kid on my floor who had gone to a school like Providence. And so, you know, he had heard of a lot of terms and obviously had had some practice in studying the word of God. And I remember him finding out about me that I had at that point in my life had believed in free will as a means to salvation. And, you know, my mind has changed since then. I do believe in predestination, but that's beside the point. That's for another day, another discussion. But he was so strongly swayed by that heterodoxy issue when he found out that I believed in free will as a means of salvation he just started to come at me. And I mean, I would come, I'd go to work in the morning and I would come back from work and there would be like sticky notes on my door with like Bible oh. verses supporting, <laughs> you know, his, his viewpoint and his uh, standpoint and his opinion. And, you know, I'd sit down at the lunch table and he would make snide comments and argue with me and you know, all of this stuff. And I remember later on, as I talked to a professor about this and, you know, as I was wading through that theological issue, I remember sitting back and thinking, you know, wow, this guy was right, but it did not matter 
that he was right in that moment. He could have given me the most reasonable, rational, biblical explanation in the world for his opinion. I was not going to be swayed because of the way that he came at me with that dialogue. And so I think this is a really good and important discussion for us to have. How do we interact with someone that has a differing opinion or viewpoint of us? And how do we represent Christ to them well? Well, Mr. Bowd, that's a that's such a helpful story. I think many of us have probably experienced that same thing. And I know that I have done that, maybe not to that extreme, to, to someone else where I have really maybe won the argument, but lost the person as the cliche goes. And that's such a helpful introduction to this topic. And, you know, Principal Williams, we're so glad to have you on the show. And you've taught rhetoric, essentially how to to argue for many years. And um, I would love to open up, building off of what Mr. Ballard has shared, and and ask you to, to help us maybe understand the difference between the terms arguing and argumentative. And does the Bible speak to those two terms? Um, thank you. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I'm very grateful to be a part of, of today's show. And I was really excited uh, when you approach me with this as a topic, because I have taught rhetoric um, for many years um, at Providence Academy. And when I think about the difference between the terms argument and argumentative, it really guides my mind toward uh, the reality that some Christians even challenge, is there any value um, in arguments whatsoever? And so one of the first things that I try uh, to teach my students is that arguments uh, can be of great value, um, and, and we should spend time um, as Christians understanding how arguments are formed, um, how we should think about audience members, um, and how we should interact um, in an appropriate way. And one of my favorite Bible passages that I've often shared in my class comes from Acts chapter 18. And, you know, of course, this is not a part of the text, but the, the headline in my uh, CSB translation of the scriptures uh, describes it as the eloquent Apollos. Uh, mm. and in, in verse 24 of chapter 18, uh, Paul writes, um, or we read rather, um, now a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed um, in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. After he arrived, he was, and here's the key part, I think, of this passage. He was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what I've always found fascinating um, about this passage from the scriptures is the fact that, uh, you know, he was an eloquent speaker. And sometimes people will say, well, if someone enters into an argument and they're arguing some topic, like Bryce said, predestination versus free will, just in his example, 
some Christians will say very rarely do you see anyone change his or her mind based mm-hmm. on the argument that they entered into. And so is it really of any value? But what we find here is the brothers and sisters, because they were listening, um, they were greatly helped. He was a great help, you know, to those who heard. And so I think the difference between an argument and becoming argumentative is this aspect of being a great help um, to someone. Uh, I think believers are greatly enhanced in their understanding of theology and understanding of how to live in community and how to interact with each other in a positive dialogue um, when arguments are uh, vetted uh, in a Christian way. Um, I think when it crosses over into being argumentative, which is really a term that sometimes has a negative connotation um, associated with it. um, and, And when it becomes argumentative, we, we tend to associate some of those more negative outcomes. And then it's really less about the argument itself and more about how uh, someone is handling the argument or presenting himself or herself, perhaps in an inappropriate way. Uh, And I think we see a lot of that, unfortunately, modeled in the broader culture right now, because a lot of exposure that both Christian uh, and people who are not Christian get to arguments is what they see in the political rhetorical realm. And they're not really arguments. They're really argumentative shouting matches. Uh, And in those shouting matches, I don't know that anyone is really greatly helped uh, instances. No, no, it's almost like for a lot of us. And I think, you know, this kind of goes back maybe even to our discussion a little bit last week, but I think for a lot of us, when we find someone with differing opinions, it can be a pride thing for us in instead of trying to get to know this person and understand where they're coming from. Instead, it's about me being right and me making my point known and me trying to say, you know, I'm, I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. I know more than you. I had more experiences than you. And in the process, like you said, there's nothing at that point that I'm going to say or do that's going to convince this person, right? This is not going to be helpful to them or any other believers or non-believers for that matter, around us. That's a really good point. And to to add on to what both of you have said, I, I think this is such a great example, Principal Williams, with Ap- Apollos. And I think because both sides, we see things of, of value going on. So what I want to focus on is we see with Priscilla and Aquila, they they approached Apollos and said, hey, you don't, quite accurately understand the way. And even though Apollos was eloquent and bold and able to speak powerfully, he had the humility to not only listen to what they were saying, but then to use that time to listen to then change his mind. And then that helpful dialogue process then made him even more helpful and productive when trying to preach the gospel. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Um, and and I think that's a nice link to something that all rhetoric students should understand. And that is the the question of what constitutes a productive dialogue. 
what mm. makes something a productive dialogue. And one of the things that I try to teach my students in a classroom setting is that a productive dialogue really has to have two fundamental components. These, and these are especially important for believers. And that it, the first is real listening um, yeah. has to be happening. We have to really listen um, to people. And listening is such a lost art form in the broader culture, but in sometimes even in the Christian community, um, we find ourselves talking past each other, you know, rather than really listening um, to what the other person or the other side, in some cases, has to present. And it's it's gotten to the point that even in the academic realm, it's been identified as such a problem that we actually have classes now on how to be <laughs> an active listener. Wow. Yeah. So real listening is is really important. And then I think a productive dialogue also produces real learning. So you should have real listening happening and there should be real learning um, that is gained. Um, and so as an example, I think like, uh, you know, Bryce introduced, there's lots of theological discussions that happen in our churches um, and those can be productive or non-productive. And if they're productive, it's going to have to be because like Apollos, real listening is happening with humility. And then there's a product of real growth um, and and real learning, you know, versus some of the bad modeling, um, you know, that we see that doesn't really produce much of anything that's going to be edifying um, to anyone. It reminds me of a, a verse of scripture in Proverbs chapter 15, uh, verse 18 says, a hot tempered person stirs up conflict, but one slow to anger calms strife. Um, and so, you know, I think if our hearts are in the right place, we're not trying to stir up conflict. We're trying to listen and we're trying to learn. Just hearing what you're saying, all of you all, it reminds me of um, passage of scripture that I came across and talking with some eighth graders a few years ago. Um, I think we were reading To Kill a Mockingbird or something, and we ended up exploring the scripture in the book of James. Um, and this ties back to our podcast on humility. And I was just reminded of it today. It's in James chapter three, starting in verse 13. And it says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And I think you all are describing this in a lot of our uh, argumentative conversations. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And I think we see that. Um, and I think Mr. Bundy mentioned Priscilla and Aquila. And I just want to ask you all, um, we've looked at how, you know, this um, attitude of focus on the gospel and humility and listening to others um, helped Apollo to grow, even though he was an eloquent speaker. But I'm kind of taken with Priscilla and Aquila's um, reactions to Apollos um, because we know that they're an older married couple. I don't know how old they were, but, um, you know, they have been believers longer. Um, and yet they don't call him out in the middle of everyone. They invite him in his, into their home to talk with him. So what can we learn um, 
like from their lives? What would you say of just how to handle this issue of conversations with people that you disagree with? Well, if I could just jump in real quick, I think that Principal Williams has has hit on the issue of listening and how important that is. I think, though, on the other side of the coin is that sometimes speaking is very important and sometimes equally important. And I and I so I would just to answer your question, I would say we can learn from Priscilla and Aquila is that just like the preacher in, in Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for everything. There's a time for active listening, and there is a time for gracious speaking. And I am so thankful that Priscilla and Aquila didn't just listen right there, but did speak to him about um, about the truth. Uh, so that he could better understand the gospel. I uh, I agree, and I think uh, something that's very important um, to to add to that thought is one of the things when we talk about teaching rhetoric in a Christian school setting uh, is to help students understand, and all people should understand. Jesus was a powerful rhetorician. Mm. Um, there are many examples um, in Scripture where we see Jesus's opponents trying to trap him in a conversation. And Mm -hmm. we see his ability to uh, respond in the moment in a very Mm -hmm. powerful, um, forceful way. And so I think any idea that, you know, Christians, you know, should not have the skills or the tools to make powerful, forceful arguments, um, you know, that somehow we should, not do that, that there's something about that is that is being unchristian is completely wrong. Um, and you, you, you see in the life of Christ that he uh, could fiercely um, uh, address his opponents um, and in different situations um, did so with different uh, amounts of force. Um, but he always did it with truth and he always did it uh, with grace um, and, and he always did it in a way that provided what the person or persons needed in the moment. And one thing that I think that can't be lost in that, you have the canon of classical rhetoric that Jesus uh, gave us so many good examples of. But there's also mm-hmm. the fact that Jesus was a great storyteller. Um, mm-hmm. when, you look, when you look at, for example, um, the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, and the question comes up, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus responds in in that rhetorical situation by telling a story, and the story that he tells um, that that we're all familiar with, the story of the Good Samaritan, really is a story that highlights and shows um, us and shows audience members what a good neighbor is. It, it, Jesus didn't give us a list of here's who's your neighbor and here here are the people who are not. So let's look at these mm-hmm. two lists. He really yeah. told a story, and by telling a story, he's making an argument. And the argument mm-hmm. he's making is, is this is what a neighbor does. This is how a neighbor behaves. Um, and so I think there's something that's very powerful about that, that Christians should be armed and ready to make forceful arguments in an appropriate way. Um, but they also need to understand that sometimes the best way to do that is by telling stories which uh, can powerfully um, illustrate and impact audience members 
um, in a way that will help enlighten them and sometimes help them have access to truth at a deeper level than just maybe a formal syllogism will or some other approach to argumentation. Yeah, Mm -hmm. context is so important when you think about the life of Christ. And in the different contexts that he was in, he was so wise in how he answered within those contexts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Caesar's, what is Caesar's? You know, he 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 read into the situation that like, hey, these people are trying to trap me and I, I'm not going to spend all my time, you know, in this moment and get angry and frustrated and try to talk to them about this. I, he was very wise in knowing when to speak, knowing when to tell stories, knowing when to ask questions. And I think we can take a lot from that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any cookie cutter, like when, when we're arguing with someone, it means to look like this because every context is is so different and kind of morphs into its own and and to be wise, to slow down, to gain facts, to understand where the person's coming from and then respond. I think we see um, in the life of Christ, which is really cool. Mm. I think it's part of the word becoming flesh. And then we have to imitate that, you know, um, meeting people where they, where they are. Um, and I know that's an overused phrase that can be mis misused, but at the same time, it goes back to listening so that then you know how to respond. And to add on to, to that principle, Williams, I think that's a powerful point of telling stories and, and the power of, a story. And my favorite example of this is when the prophet Nathan approaches David and Mm -hmm. he could have just said, you rebellious king, you, you know, X, Y, and Z. But instead he tells a story and he brings, the story brings David in and God uses that to convict him in a very powerful way. Mm -hmm. And so for those who are thinking about the role of stories in our our rhetoric in our communication that that's another great place to go in scripture but if i could pivot real quick so we we've talked about the importance of listening we've talked about the importance of the story in our communication or telling stories in our communication what about the idea of finding common ground so here i'm going to ask a, a two twofold question what does it mean to find common ground with someone and how do we do it? I think uh, one of the things when I teach my students in a classroom setting about finding common ground, I like to use the phrase building bridges mm. uh, with people. And there's a great example of that um, in Acts chapter 17. And of course, Acts chapter 17 is Paul's great sermon on Mars Hill. And he begins by finding that that common ground with his audience. Um, of course, Paul was was provoked um, to preach the gospel um, in that setting because of all that he saw um, in the broader culture um, around him. And so as he was in Athens, um, verse 16 in chapter 17 says, while Paul was waiting in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw the city was full of idols. Um, and so this distressed him. And uh, but the common ground that he was able to find when he was able to address them, um, he said, I see that you're extremely religious um, in every aspect. And that's the way he began his sermon. And so he was able to pull 
from the context that he was in um, and point out something to them that was uh, a reality for them. You know, he was able to say, look, you're obviously extremely religious. Look at all of these things, you know, around us. And he really used that um, as as a launching point. And often what I tell students is when Paul argued with Jews, he didn't start the argument um, by trying to prove the existence of God, because that would be nonsense. They believed in God. Um, so that was fundamentally a different starting point. But with, you know, these folks in Athens, he had to start with finding uh, an altar in which was inscribed, the scripture says, to an unknown God. And therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And then he says, the God who made everything. And so he begins at creation. And so I think one of the important things is Christians have to be ready to pivot um, in understanding what is the worldview of the folks that I'm engaging with and what is the entry point into the conversation based on where they are. Um, and so you see Paul being able to do that in Acts 17. You see him doing it with the Jews where he, um, and Apollos, we just looked at that example in Acts 18 where he was able to use the scriptures to prove that Jesus was the Christ. Obviously a different starting point. Um, so I think that's important um, for finding common ground. I also, I've been very influenced in my own thinking too by the great uh, uh, Christian Francis Schaeffer. Um, mm. and, and I think finding common ground is often possible for us in conversations we're having by asking the question he often asked, and that is, is it livable? You know, whatever it is that we're discussing is it a livable worldview? Is it a livable position? You know, what would it mean to actually live out whatever these truth claims that we're discussing, whatever those are, what would it look like to actually live it out? What are the presuppositions, you know, underneath it? Um, and I think that's a good way to enter into common ground um, types of conversations, um, you know, with folks. But I would add to that, there is an element of, of even thinking about common ground that we have to acknowledge that when we're arguing with an unbeliever, we're not standing in the same place. Um, you know, we're starting from the scriptures and they are not. And so uh, we always have to keep that in the back of our mind. And that's why my personal conviction is that you really have to get folks to see and understand what their presuppositions are. Um, about how the world works, uh, because if if I do argument by example as an approach, and I may have a stack of examples that are just so big and so large and so substantial, but if if the person I'm talking to has presuppositions that are unchecked, they're going to put those presuppositions on like a pair of glasses and look at my evidence and go, yeah, but I don't agree. So, so really, I think while common ground is extremely important in keeping a productive dialogue going, at some point we do have to deal with the issue of what folks are holding to as presuppositions and be able to deal with those um, in a productive way. Yeah, I think the, the the thing that comes to my mind when I think about common ground is simply asking the question, what do I share in common with this person? And there's a few theological truths that I share in common with everybody, right? And I think to think upon those truths 
will help us in how I view the person on the other side of the opinion than me, right? That person is created in the image of God, regardless of our different opinions. That person is in need of a, of a savior because they're a sinner, just like me, regardless of their opinion mm-hmm. and position. You know, that person, you know, if they're a Christian, is a child of God and my brother and sister. And I think if we meet there and acknowledge that before we dive into the differing opinions, even if it's just in our head, I think that'll really help the conversation, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, be valuable for both sides. Principal Williams, um, I, I love what you said, and, and Francis Schaeffer has really influenced my thinking quite a bit as well. And I would love to just flesh out just a little bit what you might mean by speaking to someone's presupposition. So maybe if I were speaking to someone about the resurrection of Christ and this individual didn't believe in miracles, what might it look like for us to address that person's presupposition maybe before we start building off of the resurrection of Christ? Yeah, that's a that's a great example. Um, and, and many people who are unbelievers they do have a presupposition that miracles, any of the miracles as presented in the scriptures, are an impossibility. Um, And so they really have a presupposition that they live within a closed system um, in which there there can be no uh, accounting of anything that we would deem as as miraculous, um, like the resurrection. And so very often, I think a, an effective strategy is just to ask people, um, you know, why do you hold to a presupposition that it's an absolute impossibility? You know, what are what are their their philosophical underpinnings um, to see if they can flesh that out themselves? And and I have often found that that people they're often taken aback um, when you even ask that kind of question because it's almost as if They've never been asked to provide any kind of argument, proof or structure, you know, around their belief or their lack of belief in in miracles. And what I find interesting about that, Mr. Bundy, is that leads to another part of of argumentation, and that is what we call plausibility structures. Mm -hmm. And so when we are talking with folks, they have what's called a plausibility structure of what they can even consider to be plausible, you know, as being true or not. And so lots of folks, you know, they they have a plausibility structure that does not allow them to even consider something like uh, the resurrection um, as as a a worthy item um, to discuss. And, And it reminds me of what happens uh, to Paul when he finishes his uh, great sermon to the Areopagus, the Areopagus address in Acts chapter 17. In verse 32 says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. Hmm. And we, we have to understand, I think, as folks who are gospel people, sometimes um, when we may talk about the resurrection, and if someone has a plausibility structure that doesn't you know, even allow for that to be considered, we might be ridiculed. Um, and, and we have to be ready for that and, and understand how to appropriately respond to that. 
But the scripture also says, others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Mm -hmm. Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed. And so what you have is really the fundamentally the three ways that people react when you talk about the resurrection. Jesus started with creation, and then he goes to the resurrection at the end of his sermon. Um, And so some folks are going to ridicule the notion of the resurrection. Some are going to say, tell me more, you know, and other people are going to believe. Um, and, and of course, you know, I, I believe those, those things like Mr. Ballard had indicated earlier in the hands of a sovereign God who has to open people's eyes. Um, but I, I think in a pointed way to answer your question, I would say when someone says, well, but, but that's what I'm challenging, right? I'm challenging your whole notion of the resurrection. I I think at a presuppositional level, what you have to do is try to gently, say to someone, okay, whenever I make a truth claim, I'm saying here in the book of Acts in chapter 17, here's what we find. And you're challenging that as another person. You're challenging that and you're saying, but whoa, 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 I'm not going to allow you to do that. You don't get to introduce the scripture as a truth point um, for your claim as it pertains to miracles in the resurrection. Um, And I think believers have to be ready to say, but what you're doing is flipping to the Bible of your mind, right? I'm flipping to the scriptures and I'm saying, this is my source of truth. And you're saying in my mind, right? My presupposition in my mind is miracles are impossible. What makes someone's mind opinion um, superordinate to my truth claim of the scriptures? And so I think that's a valuable place um, maybe to have a more enriching conversation um, with someone. But I have found in my Christian life, often when I've had those kinds of discussions, um, that that folks, they can become very uncomfortable because no one's ever asked them a question. It's almost like my presupposition can go unchecked. Yeah, and that's very helpful. And as we ask them to consider their presuppositions, they have every right to then ask us our presuppositions. So they might then respond and say, well, yes, I am. Um, assuming that the universe is closed and that miracles by nature don't exist. Um, But you, why do you continue to assume the truth of God's word? And that's a valid question. And, and then that's an opportunity for us to, to give our answer. I, I agree. I think it's a tremendous opportunity. And I think that's why we have to be ready, you know, to have those kinds of answers Um, As Christians, I do want to make sure, though, that I say these two things at this point in our conversation. One is I'm always very careful as a Christian rhetoric teacher to tell my students, you cannot argue people into the kingdom of God. Amen. Um, You know, they have to come under Holy Spirit conviction. So if you find yourself having, you know, hopefully what's a productive argument with someone who's an unbeliever, what you're really hoping is prayerfully, maybe that you can chip away at a wall that person has put up that kind of keeps the gospel at arm's length. And if you can chip away at that a little bit and maybe help them to at least think in a new paradigm or think in a new way, we're hopeful that the Holy Spirit then can take that. Um, and, you know, you mentioned earlier you can win an argument and lose a person. I think the relationship part of all of this um, 
is extremely important. The second thing I would say is we have to be ready when we're talking about arguments as Christians to realize, and this is something I'm fond of saying in a classroom setting, we can't talk about anything without talking about everything. And that's that's just where we are. You know, anytime we get into um, deeper conversations about truth and truth claims um, and we're trying uh, to be in community with a person who is an unbeliever, um, we have to realize that if we're going to talk about anything at all, eventually we're going to be talking about everything. Um, and that's that's where the presuppositional realm really lies, is what is your view of everything? How does all this mm-hmm. hold together? Um, and so, you know, those those age old questions of why am I here? What is my purpose? What's going to happen to me when I die? Um, you know, there are lots of ways that people like to keep those questions at arm's length. And I think sometimes as, as believers, it's our job to, to love people well and try to bring those questions into the conversation. So, Principal Williams, I have a question just as I'm listening to all of this. And, you know, Mr. Ballard really talked about humility of just reminding ourselves of the things that we believe so that we see other people um, as made in God's image and, you know, approaching that with a posture of humility. And you've talked a lot um, about just how to wisely handle various situations and how Christ did that. He would know when people were sincere and when they weren't. Um, What are some ways maybe that we can tell if someone else is genuinely seeking and wanting that dialogue versus someone who is maybe trying to uh, who maybe isn't sincere. So you hear the phrase, you know, wise as serpents, gentle as doves. What what does that look like um, with skin on, to use the cliche? It's a great question. And I think um, it takes a lot of discernment, Miss Carrier. Um, it takes a lot of wisdom. Um, and I think we have to exercise self-control. Um, I think there's an element of your question that really is rooted in what is the frequency that we find ourselves, you know, in conversations that that are opportunities for us to share the gospel and be in community with people? And if we're not doing that very often, I think it's hard to develop that kind of wisdom and discernment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think we have to uh, be cognizant, have self-awareness is, is a term that I like to use in terms of what are our own limits. Um, and and sometimes, you know, that can even involve uh, bringing someone else into the conversation that, that may have skills or uh, may have discernment and wisdom beyond ourselves. I'm thinking of a situation, uh, a, a, a fellow who was an atheist that I was in a graduate school class with that uh, I still um, pray for and uh, still have great concern for his soul. Um, and he was extremely bright. And, and to be blunt, um, in terms of just raw IQ, I would imagine he's several stay nines above where I am. Um, and, and we would have these conversations. And at one point, I recognized I needed to bring someone else into the conversation. Um, and yeah. so I, I was able to do that. Fortunately, I had a friend. Um, who was much farther along in the faith, but even beyond that, it just 
you know, had more copious reading um, experience, you know, about some of the types of questions that we were dealing with in our conversations. And so I think in terms of sincerity and insincerity, someone could have listened to the conversations I had with this young man and said, you know, he's really being insincere, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but in reality, what was happening was uh, some of, of what he was putting forth was beyond where I was at that point in my mm-hmm. own Christian life. Yeah. And I needed that back up, really, and say, I need to invite somebody else into the conversation. Um, I think on a simpler level, I would say, um, you know, there, there's not a five-step plan, you know, that I could yeah. give or provide, you know, where I would say, when this, 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 and this happens, that's when you know this is not going to be productive. Um, I think it's something you have to get a feel for. Um, some of it lies in the realm of people's emotional intelligence, um, and and how much practice they have in dealing with people and people mm-hmm. skills, um, and so we also have to realize that not not everyone is a is a fish for my net. You know, my approach to conversation um, may be very different than Mr. Ballard's approach to conversation, and and I feel like the Lord has people out there, you know, that are going to be more responsive to Mr. Bundy or Mr. Ballard or to you than they possibly be would would be with me. For example, I have a friend who now has gone on to be with the Lord. He was a gospel preacher, um, and he would tell you he needed someone to confront him like the like Peter. Hmm. You know, that's what he needed. Um, yeah. There are other people that if you take that approach, that's not going to work. Um, and so I think we have to have discernment about who we are um, and discernment about, you know, uh, the opportunities that we have. And if we... If, you know, I think all of us in our gut sometimes feel that twinge that this is going a negative direction or maybe someone's pulling me into something because the audience is gathering around us and, and they want this negative outcome. So I think we do need to have eloquent exit strategies. And there have been times that I've told people, I think this is a conversation for another time, okay. um, you, know, you know, maybe another day. And that's, that's one exit strategy that I've used. As I think about the current climate right now, there is um, lots of of dialogue. I think some is productive. I think some is not productive. I think that there are I think that there are people who are hurting. And as as Christians, what are some some tangible things that you could share with us about? how we can have a productive dialogue with um, people today and maybe not specifically even about the gospel, but even about things like, um, you know, COVID-19 or the, the repercussions of the, the death of, of George Floyd. Well, I think what I would return to in, as it relates to productive dialogue is and we've all touched on this, the importance of humility. Um, and one of the the book recommendations that I would like to make, I had three books that, that I wanted to, to recommend our audience members, uh, folks who may listen to our podcast would take the time to read. But one of those is a book entitled Unoffendable. Um, and the author is Brant Hansen. Um, and the basic, and he's a, a, a Christian writer, and, and the basic thesis is as Christians, we should be the most 
unoffendable people in our communities. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think this is extremely important when we think about the current climate and how much vitriol there is in terms of COVID-19. Should you stay in your house? Is it okay to go back out? Or we look at what is just an extremely volatile situation with George Floyd. And I think part of entering into those conversations for all Christians is to adopt this position of being unoffendable. Why should I be offended? You know, I'm I'm a, a, a anything that you might say um, because I'm a child of Christ, um, and so I think that puts us in a good posture um, to have a productive dialogue. Um, and I and I think, as I mentioned earlier, um, really listening um, and and understanding your audience. You know, rhetoric is an audience intensive exercise. Mm. And so, you know, knowing who your audience is and what frame of mind, you know, and so I often talk to students about what is their educational background? What is their socioeconomic background? What is what are their life experiences? And really, many times in a very on the street, you know, interactive type way, we can't know those things until we're in actual relationship and in community with someone. And I think one of the things that Christians in the time that we're living in are going to have to realize is that in order uh, to have productive dialogue with humility, with real listening, being unoffendable and adopting that as a posture, that even at that, we need to be in these things for the long game. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I, what I, what I would like to highlight is um, my pastor um, has a very close relationship and friendship with a pastor who pastors in Queens, New York. He's an African-American pastor. And they are, I think both of them would say in ministry, they're probably closer to each other than they are anyone else. Hmm. And they vehemently disagree on many topics, uh, definitely on political topics. They disagree. Um, and they disagree on other topics. And I've been in my pastor study before listening to the two of them talk on the phone and just <laughs> having these, um, very tense discussions. And at the end of it, listening to them say, but I still love you. And meaning <laughs> I, it. <laughs> yeah, and meaning it. And, and, and they understand the value of being able to disagree at such a deep level, but yet still... Um, having that respect and love for each other. And they always end their conversations and their arguments by saying, uh, the church is not black or white, it's red. Um, and I, mm. I think that's powerful. Uh, so I, I, I'm hopeful that our Christian community can cultivate more, you know, of those kinds of conversations and dialogues mm. um, that are authentic and real and that give space for people to express emotion. Um, express differing opinions and that we can really listen and be humble. But even though when we may disagree on a topic that we can still love each other. Yeah. That is so helpful, Principal Williams. And I'm going to be thinking through that even more after we end this conversation. As we come to the end of our time together on the podcast, can you can you recommend for us those other two books that, that have been on your mind? Yes. And, um, and any insights from those? Yes, the first is a book that um, I use uh, in my rhetoric class at Providence Academy. It's by Joe Carter. 
He's a very popular writer on the, the Gospel Coalition website. Mm, and he, yeah. wrote a, he wrote a little book entitled How to Argue Like Jesus. And so I think for Christians who are asking a very straightforward question, what does it mean to be argumentative as a believer? Well, Joe Carter is going to flesh that out for you. And he's going to take you through the rhetorical domains of logos, ethos, and pathos. But he's going to take you into Jesus as a storyteller. He's going to take you into word pictures um, and and really give you kind of a discipleship look at how to argue like Jesus. It's a fantastic little book. Um, you could really read it in one setting. Definitely could read it in a couple of days. It's not a very long book, but it's very rich. Um, the second book is by a secular writer. Um, he's a, a Jewish academic. Um, his name is Jonathan Haidt. H-A-I-D-T, and he wrote a book entitled The Righteous Mind, um, and I stumbled across this book. It was recommended by Russell Moore, um, who is uh, the principal leader, the executive director of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, mm-hmm. and uh, he recommended the book and uh, actually, I think, interacted uh, with the author um, and, and the book is why we are so politically divided and so religiously divided in our country. And, uh, you know, it's it's not a book that is written from a Christian worldview perspective foundationally. Um, but as Augustine taught us, um, we can get gold from Egypt. And so mm-hmm. that was basically Russell Moore's approach to this book was here's someone who's not in the household of faith. But he stumbled across some truth here. And so the basic fundamentals of the of the righteous mind are that people who have left leaning politics or right leaning politics, they they think morally in different categories. Um, And so he helps you understand those categories. And he also helps you understand that people often attach themselves to arguments first from an emotional standpoint, and then they Mm -hmm. go find logic to back it (laughs) up. (laughs) <laughs> and so we have to take that into context, I think. And I think that's very important, you know, for us to understand, you know, in terms of building bridges and also in terms of how to have a productive dialogue is we need to understand that people have come to their conclusion sometimes emotionally first. And then they've built a logical structure around that. And so he helps you to understand why that is and uh, how to think about that. Well, those sound like excellent resources. I have not read um, either of those that you mentioned. So I have some exciting reading to do in the future. Uh, Miss Carrier, Mr. Ballard, and Principal Williams, thank you so much for your time. Um, I know that this is going to be a episode that I'm going to uh, listen to again, not only because I have to edit it, but because there's some rich insights um, that the Lord has laid on your hearts. Thank you so much. Um, and I hope to have you guys on the show again soon. Yeah, thanks thank for having you. us. All right, Thanks thank you. Well, that wraps up our time for the Learning in Wartime podcast. I'm Dane Bundy, your host. Thank you so much for listening. My prayer is that this podcast would be a great encouragement to you in this time of war. And remember, today's going to be a great day for our Lord reigns. Rest in Him. See you next week. <laughs>